Coming up today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, reaction to the new masking guidelines from Dr. Kieran Moore with Dr. Anna Banerjee of the University of Toronto. Carmi Levy, the tech analyst and journalist, will try to wade through all the rough waters of Twitter. And Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Giacchini on will he or won't he? What is Trump going to do? I'm Shona Thompson filling in on the Bill Kelly Podcast, which starts right now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The first part of the show, we went live to Dr. Kieran Moore's news conference, who is strongly recommending masking at all indoor settings. He's recommending masking in schools. He's recommending masking in homes. If you are going to be exposed to young children, uh, he said adults can easily transmit uh, some of the key viruses that are filling up our children's hospitals. Wanted to find out a little bit more about what's going on and what these three viruses are. And uh, so we have reached out to Dr. Anna Banerjee, who's with the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Banerjee, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so y- the recommendation is for us, as I mentioned, to wear masks, but it's a strong recommendation. It's not an actual mandate. And it seems in the news conference, at least, that uh, Dr. Kieran Moore was um, almost a little bit more concerned about RSV and the flu and the impact that's having on young children, and that uh, he seems to indicate that that is leading to the surge that we're seeing at children's hospitals. Can you give us some background on what RSV is, as well as uh, how the flu is really impacting on kids? Okay, so uh, RSV is a common respiratory virus that we see every year. Usually we see every year, and it comes in cycles. Um, And for older people, it can give a cold-like illness. But the problem is that younger people, uh, especially ones that have never been exposed to it before, it can cause inflammation of the airway and cause something called bronchiolitis, and which can be like a mild cold-like illness all the way to life-threatening uh, bronchiolitis where uh, children need to be put on a, a breathing machine, uh, ventilated, and, you know, and sometimes it, it, can, it can be fatal. So right now, what we have is we have the baseline Omicron, but we have an early RSV season, and lots of kids are getting sick and hospitalized with RSV, much more than a typical season because uh, kids have not been exposed to RSV for the past few years, and so we're having a lot more kids being uh, admitted to the hospital and the ICU than before. Well, and we're also hearing a lot about the flu. In fact, uh, Dr. Moore was saying at one of the children's hospitals uh, that he had been in touch with um, that um, he was seeing, uh, he was being told rather that the pediatric ICU was about, was full and half the patients were RSV, the other half were flu. But I mean, just talking about the flu, that doesn't really tell us what kind of flu, why it's infecting children so dramatically. So it's the same kind of thing where influenza uh, in the past few years with the masking and the public health measures, both influenza, RSV, and other viruses were were really not being spread. So you have a a whole bunch of young children who are being exposed to these viruses for the first time. And so, uh, you know, normally kids get sick during the seasons, but now we have a whole bunch of kids getting sick at the same time. And so, you know, it's, both RSV and influenza are starting early this year. And so that, on top of COVID, is very concerning. 
Um, do we have any indication yet as to whether the uh, the flu shot that we're being given now, and uh, if I recall correctly, they started um, distributing them around the 1st of November, if um, uh, this mixture of flu vaccine is effective against the flu that we're seeing in the kids? Uh, I'm not sure yet. They'll have to see what the flu season is just starting. So we have to see what the circulating strain is and how well this vaccine matches that's right. So I'm not sure yet. And um, how important, in your medical opinion, is masking to help prevent the overcapacity that we're seeing in children's hospitals? Masking is critical right now. Um, so both RSV influenza and the other viruses, their droplet spread. A lot of people believe that Omicron is, is also airborne. So with droplet spread, wearing a mask really does help prevent the transmission. And so um, if you have kids, like, you know, for older kids, they might get a cold and you, you don't think it's a big deal. But then if that cold, which is actually RSV, spreads and someone takes it home to their younger sibling, then that child could end up in the ICU or end up in the hospital. So, you know, masking, because it's droplet spread, will be very, very uh, important for preventing the spread of RSV and influenza just because um, right now we're at a crisis because all these kids are getting sick at the same time. Well, I I know I was mentioning uh, earlier that uh, certainly at McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, they're at 140% capacity. That was based on numbers from Friday. I'm not sure what the numbers are going to be today. Yeah, this is a crisis. And this is, you know, where they're strongly recommending uh, people wearing masks. Well, there are people say, I'm tired of COVID. I don't want to wear a mask. It's inconvenient. Um, I'm tired of this. But they're not understanding that we're trying to save children's lives and children's suffering. And at a time when we don't have ibuprofen or acetaminophen and a lot of antibiotics are not in stock. And so... I don't, I don't think, you know, saying it's a recommendation, people think, yeah, it's a good idea to wear the mask. I don't have to. But really what we're trying to do is prevent this crisis from getting worse. And I, I strongly believe it should have been mandated, especially in schools, because we need to get this under control because there's a limit to the amount that it could, um, that we can increase uh, the ICUs and the hospital beds. I think they're trying to do everything they can but there's a limit to it. And so the best thing is really prevention. Well, I don't know if you've had a chance to see the latest Garson forecasting for the next wave. And frankly, I've lost count as to which wave we are in right now. Uh, But but we had been warned that uh, a couple of weeks ago that this triple threat was going to make this wave very, very hard on children's hospitals. Um, and we haven't, we're not even anywhere near the peak, and we're running at overcapacity at all seven children's hospitals across the province. Yes, yes. And, and even in August, I was saying we shouldn't get rid of the masking in schools. We have all these kids getting together. Uh, a lot of the younger kids are not vaccinated against uh, Omicron, and you have them breathing the same airspace. Um, and if you take away the masks, all of a sudden you're having Omicron spread, but then, then, then the added burden of RSV and other respiratory viruses, this was predictable. Well, yeah, I know we're like it, it's showing that uh, we're going to hit the peak sometime around the end of the year, perhaps into early January. If we That's start right. masking now everywhere, 
Do we have a chance to change that tide? I, I think there's still going to be RSV and influenza, but it's not. You can pretty drastically re- reduce the transmission by having the masks, as we saw in the past few years. There was hardly any RSV or influenza because people were masking, you know, or and kids were not at school. The, the combination of having these kids in school without masks when a lot of them are not exposed or their siblings are not exposed is causing this crisis. And so we really need to get the kids and everyone masked again, basically um, to prevent things from even getting worse. We've been speaking with Dr. Anna Banerjee with the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto about masking and the impacts it could have on mitigating the crisis, as she put it, the crisis in children's hospitals. Dr. Banerjee, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, there's an old saying, or is it a curse? May you live in interesting times. And the times have been very interesting, none the least of which at Twitter, particularly so since Elon Musk showed up on the scene. It was a pretty wild weekend. If you went on Twitter, you saw some parodies, uh, some people testing the verification waters by getting verified accounts for celebrities or other big names that were not them, proving how easy it was to do that even under the new rules, and Elon Musk responding. Reporter Matt Gutman explains why some analysts are saying Twitter may be joining other non-extinct sites. We reached out to Twitter for comment, got no response. Now, analysts are telling us that with advertisers jumping ship, it's possible that Twitter, often called the world's public square, could go the way of AOL or MySpace and just become obsolete. You know, not getting a response from Twitter is probably one of the most ironic things I've heard in the last several days. Uh, Joining us now is Carmi Levy. He is the person we turn to for tech analysis. He's also a journalist, and he's on the line with us now. Hi, Carmi. Hello, Shona. So great to be here with you. You're absolutely right. Uh, These are the most interesting of times for Twitter, although some days I, I think we could all wish for a little bit less interest there. I think maybe if it were a little bit less chaotic, we'd all probably be better served. Well, you know, if you're sitting on the sidelines, it's kind of like watching a tennis <laughs> match back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, well, tennis match or, you know, slow motion train wreck, uh, barn fire, dumpster fire. Take your pick. It is. Uh, I, I think we all knew it would be kind of chaotic when Elon Musk decided to take over when he initially made his offer back in April. We sort of knew what was coming, but I don't think anyone expected it to be this over the top. I mean, he literally seems to be it's almost like watching a pinball skittering from one side of the other one side to the other from you know, bouncing between bumpers there really isn't a plan there's no roadmap i don't think elon musk really has a strategy he's just reacting to whatever crisis seems to be burning most brightly in front of him right now uh and he doesn't have a press team anymore he got rid of them and he is the press team just follow his feed on twitter and you'll kind of know what what what's happening next no matter how crazy that might be well now carmy they do say that businesses Take on the personality of the owner. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's ironic because Twitter, of course, was co-founded by Jack Dorsey, who's very famously, who's no longer there, but he's, you know, rather famously, you know, kind of a, a, a bit of an eccentric character himself. And the tech industry has no shortage of, of individuals who have been larger than life, look no further than Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. I mean, these are all people who command the room and history will remember them for better or for worse, but they'll remember, will remember them. Uh, and Elon Musk is no different. And, and you know, But I think the, the difference here is, is 
he has been successful at other companies for very different reasons. He has, uh, you know, revolutionized rocketry, reusable rockets with the Falcon 9 for SpaceX. He has revolutionized the automotive industry, pushed it in the direction of electronic of, of electric vehicles or EVs, where they famously didn't want to do that for decades. And so this is a guy who disrupts industries. He's a brilliant engineer and knows how to surround himself with the right technical minds to solve previously unsolvable problems. And we know he's somewhat mercurial. We know he's a little bit out there, uh, kind of like Howard Hughes-like almost. And but then he gets to Twitter, and all bets are off. It's you know, there's really no sign of that engineering excellence. He doesn't seem to know what he's doing, um, and that emotional non-intelligence that we kind of suspected was there all along. Well, it's on display for everyone to see. And so I have a funny feeling that his win streak. Uh, of companies that he has turned around and turned into globe-changing entities might be stopping with Twitter. Well, I mean, isn't that part of the problem in the in the other companies? As you pointed out, he put the right people in and relied on their expertise. But here at Twitter, the first thing he does is fire everybody. I think that's exactly it, is that, you know, at, at all of his other companies, he has been intelligent enough to ensure that there are adults in the room. And so, for example, if you look at SpaceX, the senior leaders at SpaceX, led by Gwyn Shotwell, who's his chief operating officer, uh, are veterans of the space industry, people who had worked for and with NASA or in the rocketry industry. Um, so he knows to kind of let them do the day to day. And then he comes in and helps with some of the engineering. But Really, if he disappears or falls off a cliff, SpaceX will be just fine. Same thing with Tesla. Even though he gets a lot of headlines sometimes for sleeping on the factory floor, truth of the matter is he's hired a lot of really smart people who have figured out the ins and outs of mass-producing cars and of producing software that uh, the big three really haven't even dreamed of yet. And so, But with, with Twitter, for whatever reason, that hasn't seemed to have dawned on him yet. He still seems to be running it like a one-man show. Lopped off senior leaders as soon as he came in, and then there was a second wave of senior leaders quitting on him. And now he's, oh, just over the weekend, he's getting rid of the contractors who will, who are responsible for content moderation. So thousands more people being shown the door and he keeps making promises for all these new features. And I have to keep asking, well, who's going to, who's going to actually work on them and who's going to leave the, the, the staff who are left, who are probably all freaking out and updating their resumes as we speak. Who's going to make sure that they stick around to, to make all these changes that you're promising? So I just don't see where that's happening. And honestly, based on people I know who have worked for Twitter or who are working for Twitter, um, none of that work is happening internally right now. So he's just speaking in his feed. But in the background, it's all chaos. Well, I guess this is the big question. Are these just growing pains with a new owner or is Twitter in some real big trouble? I think anytime there is a, a new uh, f- uh, you know, regime in place, and I've worked for enough companies in and out of tech uh, as they move through mergers and acquisitions, and so I think anyone knows that anytime there's a new sheriff in town, there is going to be a bit of an upset. They are going to bring in some of their own people. They're going to change the rules. They're going to want to put their stamp on things and send the right message. This is my landscape now. I make the rules now, especially someone like Elon Musk, who already was the world's richest man. Um, but I think this is 
on a whole other level. This isn't just growing pains. This isn't just, you know, we've got a new owner. Um, this is the master of chaos doing what, sadly, he seems to do best, which is so chaos, so dissension. Um, and I don't think he really understands. He, I think he understands really well what he has deconstructed, uh, and he's pulled the Twitter machine apart. And let's be honest, it did need help beforehand. This was not a company that was healthy before Elon Musk came along. It needed a rebuild. It needed a restart, transformation. Uh, but, you know, now that he's taken it all apart, uh, he, I don't think he knows how to put it back together again. And, Humpty Dumpty, Humpty Dumpty sitting on the wall and he has no idea what comes next. Um, one of the things that I've heard is that there's been a massive devaluation uh, of Twitter, that it obviously he, he bought it for $44 billion and, uh, and now it's supposed to be worth like $8 billion. But of course, that was a tweet on Twitter. So, you know, who knows if that's true? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm like, same thing. Because it's privately held now, we don't really know what the finances are. And that's deliberate. And I get it. Um, but at the same time, it's pretty clear that there wasn't a lineup of multi-billionaires standing with checkbooks in hand waiting to pay $44 billion for the company. So I think general consensus is he way overpaid. And, you know, there are many analysts who say that it was by a factor of two, if not more. Um, I say more. Um, but the, the sad truth is, is that now Twitter is under the gun financially for a decision that Elon Musk made. In other words, it has to make money so that Elon Musk is not, is not, is not forced to essentially eat that $44 billion purchase price. And so through no fault of its own, Twitter now is in a fiscal crisis. And, and at the same time, Elon Musk is alienating advertisers who now are abandoning the platform in droves. Uh, advertising agencies that place advertisers on the platform are telling their clients, do not put your ads on, wait for this to blow over. So suddenly the, the, the advertising revenue, which is 90% of Twitter's revenue before the takeover occurred, has now basically ground to a halt at the same time that Elon Musk is staring at his financial worth, thinking, oh my God, Twitter's going to drain me dry. So frightening place to be. And if, if you're a Twitter employee and you still have a job, you're shrugging your shoulders going, I had nothing to do with this. And why am I suddenly being forced to pay the price for a billionaire who made the wrong decision? It's a good question. Unfortunately, the only person who can answer it is, is Mr. Musk. And it's not the only time that question has been asked in business with a no. new owner. <laughs> Carmi, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. Uh, And no doubt we'll have an opportunity to talk maybe even later this week. (laughs) I will keep watching, I promise. uh, And I'll make the popcorn too. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. Carmi Leamy is a tech analyst and a journalist. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So much has been going on. Uh, Down in the United States, uh, the U.S. election cycle seems to never be ending. And uh, that uh, has just been through another... Well, another round because of the midterms. So much has been happening with Canada's largest trading partner. uh, And, you know, we're still trying to figure out who's actually running the joint. Joining us now from Washington is Reggie Giacchini. He is uh, the Global News uh, correspondent from Washington. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. How are you keeping up with everything that's going on there? I mean, look, elections last uh, a long time uh, in this country. We know that elections can take a long time to try and, um, you know, clean up and get towards the very end. Uh, And then it's just a bit of a downturn before we eventually move into the next election. Um, So, I mean, it's kind of never ending. So you never really kind of get a hold of it because once it's done, there's always another one right around the corner. Yeah. In in this one, I mean, you know, you're quite correct. They have a much larger population than we have. So there's lots of votes to be counted. And the mail-in ballots uh, seem to be one of the... um, one of the areas that's uh, taking a long time. And every state seems to have different rules 
with regards to those mail-in ballots. So I guess that's one of the reasons why it's taking so long to find out who's in control. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, unlike in Canada, uh, there is no kind of federal election, um, you know, watchdog or oversight agency and everything is really up to the individual state. And that's why some states allow for mail-in ballots. That's why some states allow for more drop boxes uh, than others on uh, election day. And that really leads to a number of issues shown. A number one being, um, you know, rampant conspiracy theories about why things are happening in one state and not in another state. But it really does, as you mentioned, add to the delay in somewhere like California, the most populous state, tens of millions of people, uh, mail and ballots are given to everybody. Uh, and California gets something like 37 or 38 days after Election Day to be able to formally certify their votes uh, because it simply takes so long to count and and tabulate all of the votes that are coming in. And in California alone, uh, there are still roughly 10 races that don't have a call at all. And that is an important number uh, when you factor in the fact that there is simply no kind of control of Congress, at least when it comes to the House of Representatives right now, because there are so many outstanding races and the race for control is simply so close. Well, and, and I mean, we know that the Democrats are going to have the balance of power in the Senate, but doesn't that kind of rest on everybody showing up every single time for every single vote? Yes, it does. And and I think that there is uh, there's a potential here for a little bit of wiggle room, at least when it comes to the Senate. And that's because for the last two years, uh, it's been evenly divided. 50 senators, Republican, 50 senators, Democrat. And then in order to pass something, the vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, comes in uh, and, and casts a tie breaking ballot because in the U.S., the vice president acts as the president uh, of the Senate. I think with this Senate uh, kind of race. We're watching for what happens at the runoff election in Georgia between uh, football star Herschel Walker and incumbent Raphael Warnock. If Democrats manage to kind of eke out a win there, if they're able to grab that additional Senate seat, it gives them 51. It doesn't need to mean that there is a tie breaking vote you know, on a regular basis. But it also means even if there's a bit of a split in the Democratic Party, say someone who's a little bit more moderate, like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema, Democrats could still get something passed through with 50 and then a 50 plus one uh, with the vice president. So the balance of control is there. It means that people need to show up. But if trends continue, Democrats will have kind of a little bit more breathing room when it comes to how they move forward with votes. Well, and Kristen Sinema and uh, and Joe Manchin, those are very important names because those are two that should be voting with the Democrats. But so often it almost seems like they're sitting back going, you want my vote? What are you going to give me? Well, and, and it's important to remember, too, uh, especially with Joe Manchin, you know, West Virginia is not um, a Democrat friendly state. It's an incredibly red state. I believe it's a it's a Trump plus 10 or more state. Uh, and, and so when you have someone like Joe Manchin, who's been able to kind of garner the trust of, uh, of, of voters within West Virginia because he takes a much more kind of moderate position or conservative position within the Democratic Party. He, he's essentially able to caucus with the Democrats, but get what he wants for his state of West Virginia. The same uh, with someone like Kirsten Cinema, who, you know, w- who was really kind of intensely left wing at one point and really kind of moved towards uh, the center. If they're less important now, uh, you know, by way of being able to control the agenda because their vote might not be a a make or break, that could give the Democrats a bit of an ability here to say, well, look, we're going to put this policy first because we know that we're already going to have 50 plus one, even if we lose out on one of the more moderates. So this is a big win, a big gain for the Democrats. The House is where everybody's watching to see what happens next. Well, yeah, and that's a really key thing because 
you know, I mean, there are some who are saying, you know, it's possible, mathematically anyway, that uh, that the Democrats could also control the House. That's unheard of in midterms. Absolutely. I mean, look, midterm elections uh, oftentimes move in the opposite direction of the controlling party uh, in the White House. And and whether it's history or whether it's trends, this should have been uh, an election for Republicans to be able to run away with and get over, if not overwhelming majorities, kind of guaranteed majorities in one or both uh, sections of Congress. But simply uh, you know, the polling was underestimated. Uh, there was an underestimation when it came to uh, how Americans broadly would uh, embrace the overturning uh, of Roe v. Wade. Um, and Democrats did better. And you're right. Mathematically, there is a real chance here that Democrats could take a very small one or two seat majority. But at the same time, Shona, there is also that real possibility that Republicans are going to walk away with a majority in the House but again, not a 5, 10, 15, 20, 40 seat majority, a one or two seat majority. And they could find themselves in the same position the Senate was in with Democrats, where a couple of people from within the Republican conference are really able to control the agenda, control the investigations, control the stalling of the president's agenda, because they know without those couple of votes, uh, Republicans wouldn't have it uh, and it would fall into to the Democrats laps here. So this House race uh, is is kind of incredibly important here to figure out what's going to be stalled and what's kind of going to fall into the laps of Democrats over the next couple of years. Well, and it also brings up something else, and that would be, you know, the health of some of the older members of Congress, you know, and you'd hate to see it come down to something like that. But again, it's sort of like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg scenario. Um, and, and, you know, the death of one of those people could change everything. Absolutely, it could. I mean, in the House, um, you know, age obviously plays a factor here. But when you have 435 members uh, of the House of Representatives, you know, numbers don't kind of make as big of an important, you know, I guess with a small majority it does, but the numbers don't always need to kind of fall directly in line. In the somewhere like the Senate, that's where things could get difficult. And there have been calls for term limits when it comes to senators. Uh, and reason being, the senior senator of the United States Senate is a Republican, Chuck Grassley from Iowa. He is 89 years old. He won his reelection, meaning if he you know, survives for his term, he'll be 94 years old still sitting as an active senator. On the flip side, uh, Dianne Feinstein, she has been a kind of political stalwart in the United States for years, going all the way back to Harvey Milk uh, in San Francisco. She is now the most senior Democrat, again, 89 years old, anticipating to run for re-election, despite there have been stories about health concerns, um, you know, with with, uh, with abilities when it comes to to memory. She's intended to run again for the next two years, but also at the same time, the most senior person of the party who controls the Senate is the Senate pro tempore, who finds themselves fourth in line to the presidency uh, after the House Speaker. So now all of a sudden age is crucial here. You have somebody who's that old in line, but also somebody that, 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 that's that old making decisions about laws who, you know, unfortunately might not be alive within a couple of years to see the laws through or get the votes passed. So you're right. Age is a huge factor here. But the the. Congress in the U.S. just isn't moving in a young direction. Well, I don't think it ever has. But there's something else I wanted to touch on, and I know we only have a few minutes left with you. And this is really important because, as you mentioned, it was a key reason why this midterm election has been so close, and that is Roe v. Wade. And we heard this morning that President Joe Biden says that he doubts that there are enough votes in Congress to codify abortion rights across the United States. 
This could become a massive uh, player in 2024. Look, in October, the president said the first thing that he would do if his party had both chambers would be to codify Roe uh, and and uh, make abortion legal a- across the country. They have the votes in the Senate if they're able to abolish the filibuster. They don't have the votes in the House. And he said that this morning while he was in Bali, uh, saying that he doesn't think that the House is going to have those votes unless something unusual happens. Well, what does that mean? It means that Republican states or Republican-held states can continue to enact restrictions, uh, you know, for the time being. But in 2024, given how we saw that that Democrats kind of rushed forward to to try and protect women's health care uh, by voting for for more Democrats during the midterm than had been anticipated, if those restrictions continue, that could put Republicans in real hot water in 2024 if it throws even more Democrats out there. Because while Republicans sit there and potentially go into investigations about Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son uh, and issues having to do with COVID, Democrats are going to latch onto the issues that Americans that they believe intently care about. Uh, and this could come back to bite the Republican Party uh, if they opt to to do nothing when it comes to women's health care. Yeah, that, that could be a really... A really key issue. I think you're right there. So is there anything on your day timer for tomorrow? Say Trump? Look, I mean, this is a big deal. This was an anticipated speech a couple of weeks ago when Trump said that he was very, very probably going to make an announcement. And then last week, and he said that he was going to probably make an announcement. Well, probably and very probably is now on Tuesday. He's expected to make this announcement that he's dipping his toes into the 2024 race at a time when significant number of his candidates that he kind of gave the Trump blessing to came up short and Republicans lost an ability to get majorities because of Donald Trump, him entering the race now is going to be a real test of soul searching within the Republican Party to figure out, do we continue to follow along with him or do we continue to keep Trumpism alive or do we revert back to kind of original conservatism in the United States? This is going to be a key moment, a key test for Republicans when Donald Trump makes this announcement, if Donald Trump makes this announcement. Well, Washington is never boring. It's never boring. It's- uh, and Donald <laughs> Trump keeps Washington interesting. It keeps people on their toes and it keeps the Republican Party uh, in a position of not being able to figure out how to move forward. And it allows Democrats to latch on to that. That's why we saw what happened take place in the midterms. And that's why we potentially could see 2024 become another fight that could be Republicans to win the Democrats are able to keep them on their toes. Well, it's always interesting, and I I really enjoy speaking with you, Reggie. And no doubt we're going to have more opportunities to dissect what's going on uh, down in Washington. Look, a Republican, I mean, rather, a runoff election is in Georgia. So I said there's always an election around the corner. There's an election in Georgia three weeks from now. Awesome. Uh, Our Washington correspondent for Global News, Reggie Giacchini. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.